So I've had to fill out a lot of online forms lately. As my life and my children's lives have moved primarily online, there are all sorts of things that I'm registering for. And I've been encountering that CAPTCHA box a lot. You've probably seen it. It's that one when you finish a form that usually says something like, I am not a robot. And then you click it and through some magic of the internet, it lets the creator of the form know that you are a real human. I used to often see those ones where you had to click on the squares with a vehicle in them or the power lines in them. That act of discernment proving your non-robot status. But recently now, there are just these one-click boxes. Maybe someday I'll bother to look up how that manages to tell anyone that I'm not a robot. But when I click it, I often find myself saying aloud, nope, not a robot, with equal parts cheer and annoyance. Clicking that little box and waiting for the blue check mark to appear. But this week, I filled out a form, and the text by the little box didn't read, I am not a robot. Instead, it read, confirm your humanity. Confirm your humanity. And I was so struck by this. This form asking me to register for my child's online soccer class, online soccer, who would have ever imagined, was asking me to confirm my humanity. Now, I imagine that whoever changed that text was tickled pink by their own humor. And indeed, I smiled but it also gave me pause. Because in truth, in this time of collective trauma and uncertainty, in this time of exile from the presence of others, of enforced isolation, in this time of challenge and change, I have found myself coming back again and again to that question of what humanity means in this moment. What does it look like? What are we? Where are we going? Where have we come from? How did we get here? How do I confirm my humanity? How do we all? This week on Wednesday, Passover begins. <clears throat> Passover was one of my absolute favorite holidays growing up. In part, it was because our gathering was large. 20 plus people would come to my parents' apartment for those of you who have never participated in a Seder, it's an extended meal with ritual foods and the telling of the story of the escape from the Jews, of the Jews from enslavement in Egypt. The story comes from the Hebrew scriptures and it's a foundational story for the Jewish people. The story tells of how the Egyptian Pharaoh enslaved the Jewish people out of fear of their numbers and strength. But the people continue to multiply and the Pharaoh's seers tell him that a savior will be born. And so the Pharaoh orders that all the male babies born in the Jewish community be killed. The midwives refuse to participate, and so Pharaoh then orders that the newborn males be found and drowned in the Nile. But a young woman has a son months early, and she's able to conceal him and pretend to still be pregnant. But when he gets too big to hide and her due date comes and goes, she builds a cradle, and puts him on the banks of the Nile. The Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and her compassion causes her to bring him home. She calls him Moses, meaning he who was brought from the water, and she raises Moses among the leaders of Egypt, even as his people are still enslaved. <clears throat> when he grows older, Moses leaves the palace and he sees how hard it is for the Jewish people. He witnesses an Egyptian beating a Jewish slave, and he kills the Egyptian. 
Omitting a good deal of detail for our telling this morning, Moses flees, then he rescues some women, he marries one of them, and he becomes a shepherd. And it's while he's out shepherding that Moses happens upon the burning bush. The story tells us that Moses' God appears to Moses in the flames and tells him to go to the Pharaoh and demand the release of the Jewish people. And Moses demurs. He's not well-spoken. He's the wrong man for the job. So God appoints Moses' brother Aaron as Moses' helper. And the two return to Egypt and demand that Pharaoh let their people go. But over and over, Pharaoh refuses to even as God starts to visit plagues upon Egypt. Ten plagues. The water runs as blood. Frogs overtake the land. Lice infest humans and animals alike. Wild animals invade the cities. Pestilence kills the domestic animals. Boils afflict the Egyptians. Fire and ice rain from the skies. A swarm of locusts devours the flora. Darkness falls over the land. And at the last, the firstborn of every Egyptian family is killed. Finally, Pharaoh relents and he chases the Israelites out of Egypt. They leave so quickly that their bread hasn't time to rise. They pull it from the ovens flat. And this is where matzah comes from. And they run. Not long after they leave, Pharaoh decides to try and get them back and comes after them. At the edge of a sea, the Israelites are trapped and God tells Moses to raise his staff. The sea splits, and the Israelites pass safely through, while the Egyptians are engulfed in the water that rushes back to fill the void. On the other side of the sea, Moses, Aaron, and their people are free, but they're also at the beginning of a decades-long period of wandering the desert, searching for a home, exiled from the place they once knew and not yet sure of where they are going. The Passover story, the Seder at which it is told, celebrates that joyous moment of freedom from tyranny, of liberation from enslavement. But it also carries with it the knowledge that the Israelites didn't move from enslavement straight to joy. They spent long, hard, uncertain years in the desert, hoping and praying, sometimes having faith and sometimes doubting, sometimes getting upset with each other and sometimes pulling together well. The Passover story is one part of a much larger story of the search for freedom and a sense of belonging. My mother would get ready for Passover for days in advance. It took so much preparation. We would bring out the good linens and the china, the genuine silver silverware. An extra table and the needed chairs would be brought up from the storage bin in the basement of the building, and the shining silver cups of my grandfather's childhood would appear. On the night, we would sit around the tables, all dressed up, generations of our family. The women bustling back and forth from the kitchen, and my grandfather, Jeremiah, there at the head of the table, his normal taciturn and foreboding self. But there was also laughter and storytelling, and always abject terror that Grandpa Jerry would call on you to read the hard parts of the text. Because, and this is important, the story is told by everyone. Each takes a turn. At the Seder, you're called to remember that it was you as much as your ancestors who was brought forth from Egypt. That you, as much as your ancestors, have reason to be grateful for liberation and freedom. 
that you, as much as your ancestors, have a responsibility to fight for and work for justice. I was brought out of Egypt, the words say. So it isn't just the leader of the Seder who tells the story of our collective history. We all tell it together. It's not just a story of some long ago time and long ago people. It is our story and the story of each individual. Fortunately, almost invariably, my grandfather would call on my father, the Italian lapsed Catholic in the room, to recite the litany of difficult Hebrew names, and we could all good-naturedly giggle along with my dad as he laughed at his own attempts. The storytelling is punctuated by eating and drinking, so many cups of wine, or if you're a child, overly sweet grape juice, and by ritual moments reciting together the 10 plagues. I can still see my grandpa dipping his pinky into his wine and then tapping it on his plate. One drop of red for each of the 10 plagues. Opening the door for the prophet Elijah or searching for the afikoman, the hidden piece of matzah. And I can remember that feeling when everyone had gone. Days of preparation reached their fulfillment. The story was told and then it was time to clean up. The Passover Seder was one of my absolute favorite nights of the whole year. And I mourned it along with my grandpa when he died because our big family celebration of this Jewish part of my history didn't live much beyond the patriarch. But my wrestling with the story has never died. <clears throat> we celebrate it as a story of liberation and freedom. But of course it is liberation and freedom that comes at a cost. The 10 plagues are horrific and they culminate with that unthinkable final plague. The whole of the story is shot through with the sort of eye for an eye justice we often associate with the oldest stories in the scriptures. And it is made so much more complicated when you realize that God intentionally hardens Pharaoh's hearts against the Israelites so more plagues will come. The language of the story alternately says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God tells Moses that God will do this. Like, sit with that for just a minute. The God intentionally makes Pharaoh resist freeing the people so that more horror can be visited upon the Egyptians. And then as the tale continues beyond the endpoint of the Seder, we know that after years in the desert, the Israelites then take the land of others and make it their own. The story of oppression and liberation is complicated and violent and heartbreaking in so many ways, and it is all too frustratingly human. This is not a story utterly unique in the corpus of human storytelling, whether fictitious or factual. It is one story among many that tells of retributive justice, of hearts hardened, of cruelty and meanness of people enslaved and lands taken, of lines drawn between peoples to preserve resources or status or wealth. The story is a complicated one. There have been moments in my life when I wondered if indeed this is the story of humanity. Is the story of humanity a story of separation and meanness and violence? I have moments, I as imagine you all do, as the Jewish people did wandering the desert, of doubt. Are these the inevitable weavings of our tales? Do these stories tell us the inevitable trajectory of our collective humanity, 
when we confirm our humanity, are we simply confirming our fear and greed and unkindness? Are we destined to draw lines and cut each other out and live separately? Will it always be this way? I have to believe not. I have to believe that we will tell these stories exactly because they tell us what humanity is susceptible to, but need not become. Pharaoh is a stand-in for humanity at its worst. The message is that just as each of us was brought forth from Egypt, each of us without vigilance could yet become a Pharaoh. The story teaches us what happens when we lose sight of our connections and of our shared humanity. When we treat each other as less than human, we diminish our own humanity. We harden our hearts, we close ourselves off. When we exile others, we exile ourselves. When we lose sight of our collective humanity, we lose sight of justice, equity, and compassion. And when we lose these, we become Pharaoh, tyrants, bullies, oppressors, agents raining horror on others and on ourselves. For when Pharaoh hardened his heart, his own people were harmed. The story warns us about the dangers of our lesser natures. But it also teaches us truths about interdependence and calls us back to our shared humanity. The story holds lessons about what could be if we lived with open hearts, if we take risks and answer the call to step up with courage as Moses and Aaron do, even when we are afraid. The story offers a vision of what can be if we acknowledge the deep complexity of being human, but choose every day to live in a way that confirms the best of our humanity. The Israelites do eventually come to their promised land. They find their way to the other side beyond the exile and danger. Again, it comes at a cost to them and to others, and not everyone makes it. Notably, Moses doesn't live to see the promised land. After all his work, he dies just beyond this new home the Israelites will make. The story never makes it easy on us, because life is never really easy. We know this. There's good and bad in each of us. There are hard decisions to be made. There is pain and there will be death. Life isn't easy. So in these stories we share in these holy times, the full range of complex humanity is given. But along with the challenging parts, there are other truths here that are real. Patience, determination, and forbearance make it possible to come to freedom, to cross wild seas, to withstand loneliness and uncertainty. So too do forgiveness, grace, and gratitude. That beloved Passover song, Dayenu, captures that gratitude. It's a litany of all the things that on their own would have been enough. In this moment in which we find ourselves exiled in our own way, we need as many of us as possible to embody the best of humanity, opening our hearts as wide as we can, finding within us, amidst the anxiety and fear, gratitude for the small and beautiful moments in our lives, and for the big and grand gestures of modern day heroes. Finding within us patience, forgiveness, determination, grace, and kindness. These will help us cross the sea. These will help us return from exile. These will help us move forward. 
This is why we tell these stories millennia later. These holy stories teach us about our collective history, but they hold lessons for our individual present. We are ever unique individuals and yet part of a collective. <laughs> what happened? Okay. <laughs> when we listen deeply, we can find ourselves changed by these stories, deepened, our own living made more honest, more courageous, more thoughtful, and more meaningful. In these days to come, as we tell the stories passed down through generations, may we allow their resonances to wash over us, give us courage, and help us in our own time. In these days to come, as we remember and celebrate, may we remember our collective history, but also the stories of our own resilience and belovedness, committing ourselves to creating a world of wholeness and love. In these days to come, and every day, may we confirm the best of our individual and shared humanity. So may it be.